One thing that makes the Ramsey case unique is the sheer amount of evidence that is publicly available. With crime scene photographs, police reports, and interview transcripts, it's remarkable how much of the evidence is in the public domain. However, there are gaps in these sources, and as we discussed in the last episode, there is doubt and confusion about even the most basic facts. So we need to tread carefully. We need to make a distinction between the things we know are relevant and things that are just theories. We can start by trying to build up a basic timeline of JonBenet Ramsey's last moments. The current estimate for the time of death is around 1 a.m. We know the Ramseys got home around 10. This leaves us with three hours between the Ramseys coming home and the victim's death. Here's what the Ramseys told police on December 26 about the events of the previous night. They arrived home at 10 p.m. Mr. Ramsey said that he read to both kids for a short time and then they were in bed by 10.30. John told me that Patsy and Burke immediately went to bed. John had read a book to John Bonet, tucked her into bed, then John went to bed. However, when they were interviewed four months later, the Ramsey's story had changed in a few small but important details. She'd fallen asleep in the car, so she was asleep when we got home. So I carried her upstairs and laid her on her bed, and then Patsy came up and got her into bed. I carried John Bonet upstairs. She was asleep when we got home. I put her to bed. I got Burke to bed, and I went upstairs, and I read for a few minutes before I fell asleep. When we returned home from the White's house, she was sound asleep. She was put in her bed and tucked in goodnight. So according to this new story, Jean Benet fell asleep in the car and didn't wake up at any point that night, not even when Patsy apparently changed her pants before tucking her into bed. The fact that their story changed raises obvious questions about its credibility. John claims that the first story, the one about him reading to Jean Benet, was just a mistake in the police reports. There were a number of errors in the police report, that was one of them. But it's hard to believe that both police officers, who were recalling two different individual conversations with John Ramsey, would coincidentally make the same error. So which story should we believe? Was Jean Benet awake after she got home or not? The statements of Burke Ramsey, unlike those of his parents, have been quite consistent. When interviewed in 1998, according to Detective Thomas, Burke said, when they got home, John Benet walked in slowly and walked up the spiral stairs to bed, just ahead of Patsy. We can also approach this question through the physical evidence. The autopsy mentions fruit that was found in the victim's digestive system. The proximal portion of the small intestine contains fragmented pieces of fruit material, which may represent fragments of pineapple. Forensic testing of this pineapple showed that it was microscopically identical to pineapple in a bowl found on the Ramsey's kitchen table. Due to its location in her digestive system, there was no way Jean Benet could have eaten this pineapple before leaving for the White's party. The pineapple definitively proves she was awake at some point after coming home. Another detail we can use in constructing a timeline of events was Jean Benet's clothing. On day one, before the body was found, Mrs. Ramsey said that John Benet had been dressed in white long underwear and a red turtleneck. But when she was found in the cellar, she was wearing the same sequined white shirt she had worn to the White's Christmas party. 
Four months later, the Ramses claimed they had put Jean Benet to bed in the exact outfit she was found in. It's hard to imagine why a parent would put their child to bed after getting home from a party without changing them into their pajamas. The narrative that emerged after four months of Jean Benet falling asleep in the car seems to me like an effort to explain this unusual clothing. Based on the fact that she was still wearing the shirt from the party, that her hair was still tied up with the same hairband, and she was still wearing all of her jewelry, I think the physical evidence suggests not only that she was awake when they got home, but perhaps that Jean Benet never made it to bed at all. Note that on the morning of the 26th, there was still clothing lying on top of Jean Benet's bed, suggesting perhaps that it hadn't been slept in, and the curtains were still open in her room. The pants and shoes she wore to the whites were found strewn on the floor of her bedroom. It seems like she started getting changed for bed, but never finished. This is a good place to talk about the next major area of the evidence, the sequence of injuries leading up to her death. The coroner described the cause of death as asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. The experts agree the skull fracture was caused by one singular impact to the head. Some have proposed a flashlight as the cause of this fracture. Others suggest the edge of a bathtub. The fact is any number of objects in the home could have caused that fracture. The coroner was uncertain about whether the strangulation or the head injury had happened first. So the police enlisted the help of Dr. Lucy Rourke from the Philadelphia Children's Hospital, who was probably the nation's foremost expert on pediatric head injuries. As described by investigator James Kohler, she told investigators that the blow to the skull had immediately begun to hemorrhage, and it was not likely that John Benet would have regained consciousness after receiving this injury. Swelling of the brain suggested that John Benet had survived for some period of time after receiving the blow to her head. Necrosis indicated a period of survival after the blow that could have ranged between 45 minutes and two hours. The Boulder police contacted three other experienced experts who unanimously agreed with Dr. Rourke's conclusion. The head blow did not kill Jean Benet right away. This would mean Jean Benet was already unconscious and close to death when that cord was tightened around her neck. Remember, the coroner had also observed that there were no internal injuries to the neck. It turns out, like everything else in this case, there's more to this strangulation than meets the eye. If you've ever seen the autopsy photograph, the strangulation clearly looks severe. The cord seems to be embedded in the skin. But in fact, the lack of internal injuries shows us that this cord was really not as tight as it appeared. The appearance of being embedded in the skin is in fact an illusion caused by edema, swelling of the neck, after death. As noted in Knight's Forensic Pathology, When the ligature is still in position when the body is examined, it may appear to be deeply embedded in the skin, sometimes almost out of sight, and on removal a deep groove may be seen in the skin. This embedding may be accentuated by edema of the tissues, especially above the ligature, which initially may not have been applied so tightly. The swelling can continue to develop to some extent even after death, accentuating the depth of the groove. 
It's also important to note that since Jean Benet had already sustained that devastating brain injury, it would not have taken much strangulation to kill her. People in a weakened, brain-dead state do not respond like healthy people to strangulation. Even a relatively superficial tightening of that cord on a person with a severe head injury could result in asphyxia. Detroit's Daily Docket podcast said this about the injuries in the Ramsey case. All injuries present can shorten the length of time it takes to die from strangulation. Think of your brain cells as having an oxygen meter, and any injuries present can lower that meter. In the context of someone beaten in this fashion, it would take significantly less time to strangle before resulting in death. Considering the cord itself, although the Ramseys referred to it as a garrote, John Bonet was strangled with a professionally made garrote. The fact is, it was nothing more than a broken paintbrush and a piece of cord. According to an expert on knots who was consulted by police, the slip knots used in the wrist and neck ligatures were of standard fare. There was nothing particularly fancy about the knots suggesting that a skilled perpetrator had been responsible for tying them. The autopsy clearly states the cords were loose on her wrists, and there was no bruising on her arms to suggest that she had been tightly bound. There was a small abrasion on Jean Benet's face below her right ear, and a larger one on her neck. Detective Thomas noted that these abrasions were consistent with an attempted manual strangulation, in other words, a throttling by hand. There was also an abrasion in the genital area, and signs that blood had been wiped away from that area. These facts, along with the use of objects from inside the home, led investigators to the theory of staging. Staging is when an offender tries to misdirect an investigation by making a crime scene look like something it's not, as stated by FBI profiler Greg McCrary. The reason offenders stage uh, crime scenes is because without it, they're the primary suspect, so they have to come up with a false motive uh, to try and mislead investigators. The sequence, according to this theory, would be something like this. Jean Benet got home and ate pineapple. At some point, her bottom half was undressed and there was some kind of altercation. Based on the abrasions on her body, it's likely there was a sexual assault and a brief period of manual strangulation or throttling, which created marks on her face and neck. This altercation led to her being struck hard on the head. This would have left Jean Benet completely unconscious and brain dead with conspicuous marks on her neck and genitals, marks that could not be explained away as some kind of accident. At this point, according to the staging theory, the decision was made to cover up what had happened and stage a different kind of crime. The genital area was wiped clean in the hope that the sexual assault would never be detected. Since she already had marks on her neck, the offender created the seemingly professional garrote, adding the wrist cord and the tape to make this look like a kidnapping gone wrong. Perhaps this person wrongly believed that Jean Benet was already dead, and added the cord purely for visual effect, or perhaps they intended to ensure that she was dead as the ultimate cover-up. Whatever their motivation, we know that cord was not tightened enough to create internal injuries to the neck. Nevertheless, in her extremely weakened state, Jean Benet very quickly died from a lack of oxygen after the application of that cord. 
Interestingly, the clothing found on Jean Benet's body is also suggestive of a hurried attempt to literally cover up her lower half. The underwear she was found in were several sizes too large for Jean Benet. According to Patsy, those underwear had been bought as a Christmas present for an older relative. The idea that Jean Benet would wear these to bed makes no sense. Rather, if they were indeed a gift for a relative, they would have been kept downstairs in the basement with the other Christmas presents. The Long Johns, on the other hand, seemed a little small for a six-year-old. They were boys' Long Johns, and had apparently belonged to Burke several years earlier. Their elastic appeared quite worn. Interestingly, a plastic bag, allegedly containing old clothes for donation to charity, was photographed lying conspicuously on the spiral staircase on December 26, very close to where the ransom note was supposedly found. Is it possible that this plastic bag was the source for those long johns? Based on this clothing, it seems like whoever was staging the body was only using items from the lower floors of the house. Perhaps they didn't want to risk going upstairs, where family members were asleep. One thing is clear. This person certainly knew their way around the Ramsey home. Moving on from this rough sequence of events, we can look to the forensic evidence for clues as to who exactly may have been involved. Only one fingerprint was found on the ransom note, and it turned out to be from one of the handwriting analysts. Neither John nor Patsy's prints were on that note. The garrote and the tape were also tested for fingerprints, but none were found. Fiber evidence, on the other hand, was more enlightening. Fibers from several crucial pieces of evidence were matched to a jacket that Patsy Ramsey was wearing on the night of the killing. We believe that fibers from her jacket were found in the paint tray, were found tied into the ligature found on John Bonet's neck, were found on the blanket that she's wrapped in, were found on the duct tape that's found on her mouth. In addition to these areas, fibers consistent with that jacket were also found on the floor of the wine cellar and on the wrist cord. That's no less than six areas, which we know the perpetrator came into contact with, where those fibers were found. Patsy Ramsey offered the following excuse for those jacket fibers. After John discovered the body, when I laid eyes on her, I knelt down and hugged her. My sweater fibers, or whatever I had on that morning, are going to transfer to her clothing. The only problem with this is, on the 26th, when the body was found, Patsy wasn't even wearing that jacket, and the duct tape and the blanket were still down in the basement. So her explanation makes no sense. Interestingly, that jacket is yet another area where Patsy Ramsey changed her story. In her first formal interview in 1997, when asked what she had been wearing that night, she didn't even mention a jacket, instead claiming that she was just wearing a Christmas sweater. When police examined photographs from the Whites' party, they saw Patsy was wearing a jacket. In her 1998 interview, she claimed she'd simply forgotten about it. I mean, until I saw this picture, I had thought that I had worn my Christmas sweater to their house, the little bobbly one. And then I saw this picture and I said, oh, I must have worn that. She finally handed it over to police. That's when they discovered its fibers were a match for several pieces of evidence, including the murder weapon. Another detail that deserves a closer look is the vaginal trauma. 
police consulted four separate experts on the genital injuries. Those experts unanimously agreed there was evidence of vaginal trauma prior to the night of the killing. As lead detective Steve Thomas wrote, There were no dissenting opinions among them on the issue. All of the experts we consulted agreed on prior vaginal abuse. Dr. John McCann from UC Davis observed scarring, indicating that an injury had occurred in that area at least 10 days before the killing. Another expert, Dr. Richard Krugman, agreed that there was evidence of trauma, but he said it was more consistent with a kind of physical abuse, an act of violent punishment, rather than something done for sexual gratification. John and Patsy Ramsey both staunchly denied any suggestion of prior abuse. In a TV interview, Detective Thomas put the evidence directly to the Ramseys. Well, Pediatric experts said that this little girl, prior to the night she died, had been subjected to previous vaginal trauma. Could I ask that who they are? Because this lie. is in the same category as his so-called linguistics expert. For the record, the names of those experts are Dr. John McCann, Dr. Valerie Rao, Dr. Richard Krugman, and Dr. James Monteleone. Although the Ramseys were very consistent in their denial of the signs of prior abuse, their position on the assault that occurred on the night of her death is more complicated. It's perhaps the only area of this case where John and Patsy don't seem to be in complete agreement. Whenever Patsy Ramsey was asked about this topic, she seemed unwilling to acknowledge any sexual assault at all, not even on the night of Jean Benet's death. What is your understanding as far as a possible sexual assault? I, I think that's inconclusive. I've been told that there was no penetration. If it was a pedophile, was your daughter sexually abused? I don't believe there's conclusive evidence know. of that. We don't know. You don't know if any sexual activity took place. It's not clear to me that there was. We don't know. It's one of those questions you don't want to know the answer to, frankly. But in the years since Patsy's death, John Ramsey seems to have accepted the narrative that Jean Benet was molested on the night of her death. At least, he appears in several documentaries which claim that the crime was sexually motivated. Of course, the Ramsey's main defender, Lou Smith, has stated all along that sexual abuse was involved. It's interesting, I think, that Patsy seemed to contradict this on more than one occasion. Finally, a word on the DNA evidence. It's one of the most frequently discussed and frequently misreported areas in this case. The vast majority of DNA found on the evidence belonged to Jean Benet herself. As DNA detection technology has become increasingly sensitive over the years, the evidence has been retested numerous times. In those retests, the evidence was found to contain traces of several unidentified partial DNA profiles belonging to no less than six individuals, both men and women, who are not related to any member of the Ramsey family or any other suspect on record. The Ramseys claim that the presence of these minuscule amounts of foreign DNA proves their innocence. And so it just was overwhelmingly conclusive that this was indeed the killer's DNA. But unless you are prepared to accept that a gang of six intruders broke into the house that night, it's hard to agree with John Ramsey's conclusion. As investigator James Kohler said, You would have to be looking potentially at six different people being involved in this crime if you're going to rely solely on artifacts of DNA. 
Independent experts have pointed out that the mere presence of foreign traces, even on more than one piece of clothing, doesn't prove that anybody other than the Ramses was in the house that night. Dr. Phil Danielson from the University of Denver reviewed the DNA reports back in 2016. The only way I can describe this evidence is uninformative. It's not dispositive of the presence of a perpetrator. There is foreign DNA, but that foreign DNA can easily be accounted for by a number of innocent mechanisms. The quantity of DNA is very small. The profile is extremely complex. The one thing this case is not, it is not a DNA case. Without knowing the specific chain of custody of each of those items before and after the crime, it's impossible to say how or when any of those foreign DNA traces were deposited. Even Greg LaBerge, the analyst from the Denver Crime Lab who originally extracted that DNA profile, expressed doubts about its relevance. LaBerge indicated that it was his opinion that the male sample of DNA could have been deposited there by a perpetrator, or that there could have been some other explanation for its presence, totally unrelated to the crime. So we're starting to see a theory emerging, an act of violence followed by a staging. This theory explains a great deal, but it certainly doesn't explain everything. There are still big questions, things that don't quite add up. For example, if you are staging a crime, why would you hide the body under a blanket in a dark room behind a latched door? Surely, if the purpose of the staging was to create a clear image, for the police, you would leave the body out in the open. Why would I, for example, have staged this horrible scene and then disturbed it myself, pulled the tape off her mouth, carried her upstairs? If I'd have staged it, I would have wanted the police to see it as I staged it. It's not logical. This case doesn't really work as a textbook example of staging. In my opinion, there is one last piece of evidence that ties it all together. Features music from Coag on YouTube and Lucor on Audio Jungle. Vocal contributions from Eric Peabody and Meredith Nudo. Production assistance provided by Magnolia Studios. Visit our site for full attributions and references.